Gresham College presents The History of Street's Performance by Dr. Paul Simpson. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, firstly, I should just express my apologies for not being able to be with you uh, in person uh, this evening. As I think will already have been explained, um, it's not been possible for me to, to make the trip to London from Plymouth due to a combination of a, a rail strike between uh, Plymouth and London and then a tube strike between Paddington and where you are this evening. Um, so the, the travel arrangements just turned out to be um, not possible uh, within those constraints. Um, in place of my physical presence, um, we've prepared this uh, audio uh, presentation, which will hopefully act as some substitute um, for, my, for my lack of being there. Um, before going on to the, the content of that presentation, I should just say at this point, um, thank you to Eleanor and everyone else uh, as part of the City of London Festival for the invitation to speak to you all this evening. It was very much appreciated and I'm sorry I'm not able to be there uh, in person. And also thanks to Valerie uh, um, and everyone else at Gresham College for uh, for hosting this and also for their um, assistance in the uh, unexpected events in the last couple of days in terms of the strikes and finding alternative arrangements and uh, accommodating that is very much appreciated. So the topic of my talk this evening is, as the, the first slide should show, uh, the history of street performance and particularly uh, focusing on the subtitle of what I've called Music by Handel and the Silencing of Street Musicians in the Metropolis. Um, I've been conducting research related to busking, street music and street performance um, over the past uh, about 10 years now. Um, firstly, as part of a, a PhD research and um, since completing my PhD I've been uh, looking into it further since then. Um, and the sources I'm drawing on today have kind of emerged during that time um, and hopefully draw together an interesting picture. Uh, around street music that fits within the context of the City of London Festival um, and, and the lecture series that are happening in relation to that. I should start by noting that talking about the history of street music poses some challenges. Street musicians are a near ubiquitous feature of the everyday life of many urban environments. As Cohen and Greenwood suggest in their history of street entertainment, this has been the case for centuries. However, while the name by which uh, these performers have been known has changed, as has the specific nature of their acts and their means of gaining an income, a common circumstance for such performers is that they have maintained variously uncertain situations within those societies and in those spaces. Some of these performers have found themselves in a relative, relatively privileged position. Historically, for example, a minstrel or player in the 12th or 13th century may have been in receipt of the patronage of a great man and so benefited from associated protections when travelling. Without such patronage, it would have been quite hard to move so freely or spend any time in one place without being treated as an outlaw. Also, it would be quite common during the 16th and 17th centuries in England for itinerant musicians and other performers to be engaged by local authorities to play at certain civic events, giving them some associated standing. And more recently, we can think of those performers who are in receipt of formal permits or licences from a local authority or landowner that allow them certain rights to perform. Uh, Covent Garden and the London Underground are perhaps two of the best known contemporary examples of that in the UK, um, though perhaps there won't be much performance in the London Underground at the moment. These recognitions and accommodations noted, though, many other music street musicians have found themselves in less enviable positions. 
itinerant performers were, and still very often are, viewed suspiciously by the authorities and society as a whole for their very mobility. Being perpetually on the move can mean that these individuals do not obviously fit within common social structures based around belonging and boundaries. For example, as Tim Cresswell notes, during the Middle Ages, minstrels were thought of as lecherous and irresponsible fly-by-nights. Further, associations between such performers and beggars or vagrancy recur through the history of street music. Where the act's quality did not meet an individual's taste, a common response has been to dismiss such a performer as basically a beggar or a little more than a vagrant. The presence of the patronage or other form of recognition just mentioned exacerbates this issue for what we might consider to be freelance performers. In the past, these freelancers may have been hounded out of town or their activities repressed by the church. Today, we have statutory nuisance legislation and community protection notices that can be used to silence or exclude such performers or certain types of performers from public spaces. Perhaps as a result of such positions on the margins of polite or even acceptable society, there are limitations to the extant source material that documents the history of street music. In turn, written histories of street music and the musicians that have played it are again somewhat limited. While there are some notable exceptions, for example the quite substantial literature on the music of the troubadours, in the main, art histories have not considered the bulk of these other itinerant performers in any great detail. This is understandable, though, given the status of many of these performances themselves, as being art, is often up for debate. It's interesting equally, though, that street music only receives a couple of short mentions in David Hendy's recent study of the history of sound and listening called Noise. Such limitations noted, there are some useful historical records that can be found. For example, records of the performances and journeys undertaken by various forms of itinerant entertainers during the Tudor and Stuart periods can be considered thanks to their payments being noted in civic accounts. However, as suggested a moment ago, this only covers the more reputable performers. As Bracey notes, it is likely that entertainers offering earthier, less sophisticated shows are underrepresented. Being in the most part of uh, in the lower classes of society, such musicians were not necessarily in a position to write their own history or even have their say on what was written about them. In fact, quite the contrary. As Sally Harrison Pepper notes, much of the history of street performance is found in the laws that prohibit it. Much of the existing written history of street music takes the form of letters written by those complaining about the nuisance street music posed for them and in the records of the debates that took place in the development of street music legislation. With this complex history in mind, and recognising the time frame that a complete history would need to cover, I'm not going to try and sketch out anything like a full or complete history of street music this evening. Rather, in this lecture, I'm going to discuss one particularly well-documented episode in the history of street music that ties into a range of tensions I've just mentioned, namely the situation of street music in Victorian London. Due to a variety of reasons, this is by far and away the most extensively documented period in the history of street music. The street music problem, as it was then called, emerged in light of the growing uh, class of musical, medical, legal and literary professionals, um, individuals with means and opportunities to voice their concerns, if not escape them, for whom street music disrupted the quiet tenor of their home-working lives. This has left a range of interesting sources grouped around the mid-19th century that give uh, detailed insight into the uncertain situation of street musicians in the streets and squares of London at that time. And as we'll come to later, 
these sources also reveal quite how little the position of street music has changed in such environments, given recent and ongoing debates regarding street music in the City of London um, and surrounding boroughs, uh, not to mention other urban centres. Before talking about the street music debates, it's important to set something of the sonic scene upon which they played out. The 18th and 19th centuries saw dramatic changes in the soundscapes of the United Kingdom. The Industrial Revolution in particular led to significant changes in the soundscapes of urban environments at this time. The increased necessity for factory-based work drew increasing numbers of people into one place, and the related growth in urban populations led to cramped and often unpleasantly noisy living conditions. The nature of the work undertaken in these factories itself produced a great deal of noise, the running of steam engines and hydraulic presses, the firing of pistons, the clanking of metal and metal, all produced an incessant din that could overwhelm the uninitiated observer and potentially deafen the factory worker. Alongside this, technological advances in sound amplification and recording led to the ability to mechanically reproduce sounds beyond their initial taking place and or make previously imperceptible sounds audible. This was, as Picker notes, a period of unprecedented amplification, unheard of loudness, an age alive with sound. Or as Schaefer suggests, the Industrial Revolution introduced a multitude of new sounds with unhappy consequences for many of the natural and human sounds which they tended to obscure. It meant that it was no longer possible to know what, if anything, was to be listened to. The clarity and definition of the pre-industrial soundscape really became a disorientating and indistinct noisescape during this time. For some, such noise might have been a symbol or sign of industrious progress, and with that, the expanding vitality of life in the metropolis. For others, though, this presented a very different situation. For a range of individuals, living amid such a soundscape risked the productivity, mental well-being and even physiological health of the population. And this brings us to the street music debates. The debates had their origins in the 1840s when the Times began to publish regular letters complaining about street noise. As just noted, the metropolis had become increasingly noisy during this time. While various measures were taken to limit some of the sources of these noises, uh, from the start of the 1850s and on into the 1860s, attentions focused on one source amid this noisy scene that was deemed to be deserving of particular scrutiny, uh, street music. It was suggested that the noise made by such performers had become an extreme problem, and so it was the task of the affected members of the public to demonstrate what great obstacles are opposed by street music to the progress of art, science and literature, and what torments are inflicted on the studious, the sensitive and the inflicted. Echoing common Victorian proclivities, a common initial reaction to such street music and its sources was to scrutinise them in great taxonomic detail. For example, Charles Babbage, in his chapter on street nuisances, lists all of the, quote, instruments of torture permitted by the government to be in daily and nightly use in the streets of London. These included organs, brass bands, fiddles, harps, harpsichords, hurdy-gurdies, flagellettes, drums, bagpipes, accordions, halfpenny whistles, tom-toms and trumpets. Beyond this, Babbage also articulates certain common associations between instruments and the performers that played them. So organs are attributed to the Italians, brass bands to the Germans, tom-toms to the so-called natives of India, fiddles to the English, and so on. There was also some hierarchical organisation in these taxonomy, taxonomies. We get a sense of this from Charles Manby Smith, who, writing in the Chambers Edinburgh Journal in 1852, uh, proclaimed the following. 
Perhaps the pleasantest of all the outdoor accessories of a London life are the strains of fugitive music which one hears in the quiet by streets or suburban highways. Strains born of the skill of some of our wandering artists who, with flute, violin, harp or brazen tube of various shape and designation, make the brick walls of the busy city responsive with the echoes of harmony. Many a time and oft have we lingered, entranced by the witchery of some street Orpheus, forgetful not merely of all the troubles of existence, but of existence itself, until the last strain has ceased and silence arouses us to the matter-of-fact world of business. This we must pass over with this brief mention upon the present occasion, our business being with their numerous antitheses and would-be rivals. The incarnate nuisances who fill the air with discordant and fragmentary mutilations and distortions of heaven-born melody to the distraction of educated ears and the perversion of popular tastes. Music by Handel, as it's been facetiously termed, forms our present subject. This kind of harmony, which is not so often deserving of the name, still constitutes by far the largest proportion of the peripatetic minstrelsy of the metropolis. It would appear that these grinders of music are distinguished from their praiseworthy exemplars, the musicians just mentioned, by one remarkable and to them perhaps very comfortable characteristic. They have ears but no ear, though they would hardly be brought to acknowledge the fact. The worst culprits, then, were very often deemed to be the numerous organ grinders to be found throughout the city streets. These were seen to be the most common of the street musicians, and it was regularly claimed that there were in excess of 1,000 organ grinders plying their trade in the city, uh, though not, this number was thought to have dropped slightly by the 1870s. While there were a range of types of organ played and some variation in those played them, as Picker notes, it was the Italian organ grinders that came to be seen as the repulsive source of virtually all noise in the city, and many at the time felt uh, that their eradication was the task of every friend of tranquillity. Such street musicians were deemed to be the lowest of the low, based both on the quality of their contribution to the soundscape, but also in light of the questionable ways in which they were seen to conduct their performances. With this increasing prominence of both street music and complaints against it, the case against street musicians reached its head with the street music debates in Parliament across 1863 and 1864. Here, an MP and brewer, Michael T. Bass, brought to Parliament an Act for the Better Regulation of Street Music in the Metropolis that proposed to repeal a section of this Act for further improving the police in and near the metropolis. This text identified various problems with the existing legislation. These problems included that, for example, uh, they had required the person complaining to be the affected householder or a servant acting on their behalf. This meant lodgers, for example, had little standing in making a complaint. Further, as the legislation only made reference to thoroughfares, this risked implying the exclusion of cul-de-sacs or performances taking place in gardens. Quite problematic also was that the offence had to be committed within view of a constable for them to be able to take a performer into custody. All a street musician had to do, then, was not play when the constable arrived. Finally, particularly troublesome was the reference to the legislation in the legislation for there to be reasonable cause for the complaint. While illness was specified as a specific cause here, the ambiguity over what else could be deemed reasonable effectively meant the legislation could not be enforced particularly as police constables had received instructions um, late in, in 1859 to say that they should only remove street musicians where illness was the issue and that they should not remove them for other reasons without first reporting to their sergeant or station. 
Bass's Act, which was passed in amended form in 1864, instead proposed that any householder or person acting on their behalf could complain and so demand that a musician leave their neighbourhood, quote, on account of the interruption of the ordinary occupation of pursuits of any inmate of such house. While this was a lot clearer in terms of on what grounds complaints could be made and by whom, the degree to which this made a great deal of difference to the soundscapes of the metropolis at this time is questionable. Street music was to be a feature of the soundscape of the metropolis for some time to come, and this persecution of very public ridicule of street musicians, which I'll talk about more later, actually ended up romanticising their presence and uh, led to contributions in their defence. During the time of the deliberations in Parliament, Bass published a collection relating to street uh, music titled Street Music in the Metropolis. This brought together letters, official reports, materials from the press, and so on, much of which called for the outright banning of street music. The text itself is notable for the range of names that appear in it, and for the way in which it, along with other comments at the time, gives a clear insight into one section of the public's perceptions of street music and their very clear distaste for it. Notable figures such as Charles Darwin and Charles Babbage contributed letters or comments for the collection. The remaining cast of contributors included lawyers, music tutors, composers, ministers and other members of uh, notable professions that in some way required home-based working, mental rather than physical labours, and so the need for quiet to carry out their duties. A number of themes come up through uh, that text and in the debates more generally. The issues presented therein can be understood collectively in terms of the particularly intrusive nature uh, that was felt to exist around street music. Firstly, uh, the most problematic performers, the foreign street musicians, were intruding into the country. Secondly, at the same time, many of these performers were seen to be intruding into the domestic spaces of the more respectable population through the noises they made. The capacity of sound to pass through obstacles, its propensity for penetration and ubiquity, meant that there was literally nowhere to hide in these urban spaces, either public or private, from such street music. And this point about respectable population raises the third intrusion. Clear class-based distinctions come through in these debates, with the majority of letters included coming from the emergent middle classes, and especially those working from home, who wanted to have the streets made orderly and quiet to allow them to properly pursue their work and leisure activities. A clear message comes through. Working class tastes for organ ground music played in the streets were intruding into the more refined sensibilities and spaces of the middle classes. In looking into these debates in more detail, uh, the remainder of my discussion here will then focus around uh, two themes that emerge from this. Firstly, I'll talk about the portrayal of the performers themselves that were deemed to be so objectionable by those engaged uh, in the street music debate, focusing on tensions around national identity and class. And secondly, I'll look to the content of their performances and the troubling sounds they made, uh, which had such great impacts on the nerves of those that were forced to listen. Together, this should show the ways in which the identity politics of the time and the properties of the sounds that were produced worked in concert in producing such disquiet around the presence of street music. Focusing specifically on the organ grinders, throughout street music in the metropolis, references made to them being as Savoyard fiends or blackguards that smelled of a combination of garlic and goatskin, and also it was suggested that they lived in overcrowded conditions in Saffron Hill. 
Some of the specific language used here is instructive in that it shows the low views complainants held in relation to these street musicians, given that they would normally be used in reference to insects or other lower order creatures. It was suggested that they infest the streets and have brought a certain vice from Italy, or it meant that the streets swarmed with vag vagabonds. Further, reference is regularly made to such performers being part of an immoral slave trade where they were uh, thought to work for padrones who rented them their organs having shipped them over from Italy on the promise of work. These organ grinders then had to meet daily targets to be able to pay back this rent and pay for their accommodation and subsistence. This was a potential justification for their uh, accused reluctance to move on when people complained about them and it wasn't just that they were immoral or lacking in respect for those they were, who were complaining. In fact, the banning of street music was thought by some to be in the interest of the performers themselves. As one person suggested at the time, I conclude that the reason we all bear it in silence is that we think that if the law were to stop to step in and abolish street music, a poor, honest and industrious class would be deprived of the means of living. In this, I imagine, lies our mistake. I'm convinced that our legislature could not pass any measure of more genuine humanity and charity than the one which prevent the importation of those poor Italians into this country. They come, with scarcely any exception, to satisfy the greed of a few large speculators of their own nation. They are badly treated, ill-fed, and into the bargain cajoled out of the great part of their hardly won earnings, before they return to their own homes, which many of them never reach. With less suggested sympathy, though, it was also argued that these immigrant performers should have lesser rights and so be suppressed more effectively, given that those complaining were, quote, surely subjects of the Queen more than the Italian organ grinder is. There was very much a perceived distinction between who was in place, who belonged, and who had the rights, and who were out of place, didn't belong, and so had few or no rights. One of the clearest ways this otherness comes through is from the graphic representations of the organ grinders that appeared at the time. Most prominently, these appeared in the pages of Punch, and a couple of these uh, can be seen on the slide. The illustrator John Leach drew many of these in light of his own troubles with street music and the way in which uh, he perceived this to be negatively impacting upon his health. These illustrations are interesting because they present grinders as variously dirty and subhuman, with Darwinian notions of evolution uh, being evident within them as part of a general xenophobia directed towards these foreign invaders of both the country and the tranquility of the Englishman's home. Moving to the question of the socioeconomic class of these musicians, their audiences, and thinking in terms of the class identity of those complaining, this proves to be quite a complicated issue. In the first instance, looking through the pages of Bass's collection, it becomes striking who it was that was actually complaining. As mentioned earlier, letters appear from some very notable figures of the time, including Charles Babbage, John Leach, and Charles Dickens. We also have letters from doctors, clergymen, and even the harpist to the Queen. This raises something of a tension in Bass's case, though. Bass suggests early on in street music in the metropolis that he received letters from all classes expressing thanks to him for taking up this issue and seeking to address it. However, on the very next page, he makes specific reference to the letters in his collection coming from members of, quote, the learned professions and from literary and scientific men. The representativeness of his selection of letters as 
portraying the opinions of the population of London in general then is very much up for debate. For some in the collection though, such lines of questioning were to be easily dismissed. A number of the authors of these letters contained in Bass's collection suggest themselves to be speaking on behalf of those lower classes that have confided in them their concerns. Here it is suggested that, for example, if the inhabitants were polled, the vast majority, rich and poor, would vote against organs, whatever they might say about the kinds of music. It was not then a case of class-based differences in taste that was at issue, but it's argued that the music itself was the problem and that it was played at all. However, alternative impressions do come out from the debates. Street music is often regarded more generally as being a democratic form of performance that's open to anyone, and in particular being open to those of limited means given that there's no charge for entry, to access a performance, and that donations are voluntary both in terms of their actual giving and the amount given. This is borne out in the street music debates in that many of the letters sent to Bass suggest that it was in fact the support given to street music by such poorer members of society that meant the problem persisted. A number of letters in Bass's collection do suggest that those with limited tastes were to blame for the ongoing presence of street musicians. Here the greatest challenge to the campaign against street music was that a large part of the community applauds and rewards those music musical performances which cause other persons annoyance and perhaps misery. This rude majority did not, however, confine their questionable taste to the confines of their homes, but instead chose to enjoy it in the public spaces of the city, and so imposed their choice upon those others less well disposed towards it. Another way in which such class tensions were often framed in the debates was in terms of what, and by implications who, was more important. Was it the entertainment of the lower classes of society, and so those individuals? or was it the industriousness of the intellectuals in society? This was stated quite bluntly at times. For example, one letter commented that the abolition of street music is most earnestly desired by a large body of the inhabitants of London. Its retention is desired probably by a still larger section, but one really of comparatively little importance. Here the former are connected to the authors, the artists and so on that laboured for the public good. The latter, of, as stated, comparatively little importance, were seen to be made up of, quote, household servants and others whose wishes surely cannot be of importance when weighed against those of the classes just mentioned. Moving on to think more about the class of the performers themselves, while some of the activities of the street musicians and their supporters were confrontational and questionable in response to the complaints received against them, as Cohen and Greenwood note, for many, street music was the last resort before begging or the workhouse a fact that seems to have been ignored by its critics in the great public debates of the 1860s. In many ways, the accounts given throughout the debates paint a snobbish and unsympathetic portrait of a great number of people with little other option. This comes across most clearly in Henry Mayhew's interviews with various street musicians recounted in his London Labour and the London Poor. And things really appear to be quite terribly desperate for many of these performers. In Mayhew's text, we hear, for example, from a French hurdy-gurdy player who was sold into slavery as a child and was subsequently a slave for ten years prior to, his, prior to his current street music activities. We also hear from a blind harp player who was regularly bullied by boys and had his harp vandalised, meaning he couldn't play. 
It is not necessarily the case then that these performers intended to disrupt the orders of the Victorian city with uh, their music. They were not necessarily nasty or immoral people, despite being portrayed as such. Rather, their performances were simply part of the attempts of some of the city's least fortunate residents to get by or maintain the precarious life that they led. These points noted, in thinking about the street music problem, while concerns were raised about the performers themselves, it's important to also consider the music that was played. If anything, the portrayal of the performers just discussed was articulated to add weight to the principal issue of concern here, the disturbances caused by street music. Though opposing views existed here, one aspect of this related simply to taste. Even though performers from the time commented on the need to have a repertoire that would engage various members of the population, ultimately the music being played was not that which at least some of the middle class complainants wanted to listen to. However, there was more to it than this. It was not so much an issue of what was played, but rather how it was played. The questionable harmony, the piercing tone, the volume and the frequency and or repetition were identified as fundamental issues with the street music and specifically with that produced by the barrel organ. Such discordant, mechanically reproduced sounds were particularly effective when it came to the impact they had upon the listener and the sorts of disposition towards the music played it produced. To return to Mamby Smith for a moment, we get an evocative description of the organ grinder's sound that those complaining as part of the street music debates found so distur disturbing. The grinding of organs was felt to be made up of the piercing notes of a score of shrill fifes, the squall of as many clarions, a hoarse bray of a legion of tin trumpets, the angry and fitful snort of a brigade of rugged bassoons, an unintermittent rattle of a dozen or more deafening drums, the clang of bells firing in peals, the boom of gongs with the sepulchral roar of some unknown contrivance for bass so deep that you can almost count the vibrations of each note. In thinking about the particularly effective nature of such sounds produced by street musicians, Charles Babbage's comments from the time stand out on both their extent and veracity. The scale and vigour of his complaints won him something of a following at the time. As he stated, he had developed an unenviable celebrity, not by anything he had done, but simply by determined resistance to the tyranny of the Lewis mob, whose love, not of music, of the most discordant noises is so great that it insists upon they insist upon enjoying it all hours in every street. This mob took various steps to show their disagreement with his actions, ranging from displaying placards and shop windows near his home, to posting him threats, to breaking his windows, to throwing dead cats into his garden. Equally, during his attempts to have street musicians stopped by the police, a large crowd would often form and follow him to the police station, shouting abuse at him as they went. As I mentioned, though, a central theme in Babbage's account relates to the physiological effect that street music could have on those forced to listen to it. Babbage argued that those who possess an impaired bodily frame and whose misery might be alleviated by good music at proper intervals are absolutely driven to distraction by the vile and discordant music of the street waking them at all hours, in the midst of the temporary repose so necessary for confirmed invalids. Babbage's concerns were not, however, purely philanthropic towards the sick or infirm. His concerns were much more closer to home. 
Babbage claimed that, quote, on a careful retrospect of the last dozen years of my life, I've arrived at the conclusion that one-fourth part of my working power has been destroyed by the nuisance against which I have protested. He also suggested that 25% is rather too large an additional income tax upon the brain of the intellectual workers of this country to be levied by permission of the government and squandered upon its most worthless classes. Leaving aside the class-laden rhetoric of this last comment, this clearly also shows the physical impact of the music on the listening body. Babbage notes that his capacity to perform certain tasks, in his case particularly intellectual tasks, were diminished as a result of the disruptive effect of the music and his desire to protest as a result. Taking a step back from the specific content of some of these comments though, an overarching theme that emerges amongst those complaining about the way they were affected physically by such sounds seems to relate to their disposition towards the arrival of such sounds in the first place. And this ties into a particularly interesting Victorian disposition or concern for their nerves. So this was often discussed in terms of how it affected their nerves or them having a particularly fragile or strained nervous disposition. As one author in Bass's collection noted, To those like myself, in such health as overworked citizens can be, with the nerves in constant tension, a reasonable cause for requesting the music to cease is tomfoolery. I go home from the city, the brain overwrought, feverish and fatigued, and I require rest and a change of occupation, reading, writing, and music. And these are impossible with the horrible street music from all sides, the very atmosphere impregnated with that thrice-cursed droning noise, that abomination of London which makes me ill, which positively shortens my life from the nervous fever it engenders. Thinking around this further, we can turn to what is now a classical sociological text that considered these sorts of sensory changes taking place during society during the 19th century, Georges Zimmel's The Metropolis and Mental Life. In this, Zimmel reflected on the effects of this increasingly and constantly stimulating nature of city life on the emotional life of individuals. From that, Zimmel suggested that to cope with this, the individual needed to make adaptations to their comportment or disposition. This meant adopting a blasé outlook, a distance or indifferenced disposition, whereby the individual's nerves adjusted themselves so as to renounce response to the intense experiences they undergo in the metropolis. And the best illustration I can think of that is the likelihood of anyone on the tube talking to each other. Although Zimmel was writing roughly 40 years after the street music debates took place, I think there are some interesting parallels here regarding the experience of organ ground music and the dispositions of those subjected to the sounds uh, adopted. In developing such an extreme aversion to the music plate and making such a repeated conscious, even obsessive response to it, it appears that Babbage and others failed to develop the sort of blasé persona Zimmel talks of. We could argue, though, that this failure resulted in part from the fact that these middle-class residents had nowhere to retreat from the overstimulation of the metropolis's streets. Such inhabitants of the city had no possibility to develop any literal distance from which they could relax their nerves or allow tensions to dissipate, either, as Picker notes, quote, in assaulting the hearth the organ grinders denied them the pursuit of rest so essential to the life of a proper gentleman, or worse, for those without an office, it presented a risk for both their livelihood and their leisure. 
Either way, not only did they face the constant stimulation of the metropolitan environment, the sonic aspects of the stimulant also impeded into their homes, or rather, the very recesses of the Englishman's castle. Hopefully, from this account it is clear that street musicians held a rather marginal and contentious position in the streets of Victorian London, both on the basis of who they were and what they played. To conclude though, I just want to highlight a couple of connections and points of continuity with regards to the present situation of street, street music in the metropolis today. Firstly, while I situated the Victorian street music debates in the context of the sonic changes that took place in light of the Industrial Revolution, and related concerns over the increasing noise produced by that, today's street music happens within the aftermath of another revolution, the electric revolution, or even the digital revolution. This, again, has been shown to have significant implications for urban soundscapes in terms of noise. In many ways, cities have become louder, both in terms of volume, but also in terms of duration. We have many more sources of noise, and we have a greater range of technologies that allow us to make things heard. And of great relevance here in the context of street music is that the sounds of the barrel organ have been replaced with the sounds of guitar, voice or other instrument amplified by battery-powered amplifiers, the most common target of contemporary street music debates. As such, complaints about street music continue, again principally on the grounds of its disruption to both commerce and leisure. So much has changed here, but so little has changed also. And secondly, we have the legislative situation of street music, which is also about continuity and change. While there have been a range of developments in terms of how noise is regulated in urban environments in the intervening years since the street music debates, perhaps most obviously through statutory nuisance legislation, which is often invoked in response to complaints about the presence of street musicians and the music they play, we have something of an ironic situation in London today when it comes to the legislation specifically covering street music. Today, street music is actually governed by legislation put in place prior to the street music debates I've discussed this evening. Specifically, Section 54, Paragraph 14 of the Metropolitan Police Act of 1839. This effectively bans street music, stating that every person shall be liable to a penalty who, within the limits of the Metropolitan Police District, shall in any thoroughfare or public space blow any horn or use any other noisy instrument for the purpose of calling persons together or of announcing any show or entertainment or for the purpose of hawking, selling, distributing or collecting any article whatsoever or of obtaining money or alms. So in quite literal terms, though with some small exceptions, the situation of street music in the Metropolis today and the debates taking place relating to it play out from something of a Victorian starting point. So on that note, and the, uh, the last word on the slide from Charles Babbage, um, I just want to say thank you again um, to everyone for the invitation uh, to come and speak this evening. Again, I'm a, apologies that I'm not able to, to be in person in London with you, um, and I hope that uh, you found uh, the talk this evening interesting. Thank you. For all information, please visit gresham.ac.uk.